0: From PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. When the Children's Television Workshop was developing their first educational show, they borrowed from a pretty unlikely source 1960s Madison Avenue.
1: Fast action, humor and animation have become established means of attracting children's attention to television.
0: That's creator Joan Ganz Cooney pitching the idea in 1969.
1: You'll note in the animated cartoon sequences that the short, simple, 60-second form used by TV advertisers is used here to teach numbers and letters.
0: That show, of course, became Sesame Street. It premiered 50 years ago this fall. Its format broke the live action segments on Sesame Street with cartoons. CTW, as it was called, commissioned animators from all over the world to come up with the show's shorts. Most were straightforward and didactic. Others were abstract and surreal and... Sometimes even a little unsettling. I think I'm lost. I don't like it here. But one viewer remembers a Sesame Street cartoon that wasn't just strange, it was terrifying. And it's still shrouded in mystery.
2: Studio 360's Sam Kim has the story. When he was about six years old, John Armand was traumatized by something he saw on Sesame Street. Wait a second, this is it happened sometime in the mid-'70s. He was watching the show in his living room, surrounded by bad wallpaper and shag carpeting. And in between segments with Mr. Hooper and Cookie Monster, this bizarre cartoon suddenly appeared. John remembers it starting with this little girl lying in her bedroom. There's a crack on her wall, and she watches it morph into the shape of animals.
3: I remember really eerie, off-key music and these creatures. There was a camel, and I remember that there was a monkey that were supposed to be kind of the good guys, but scared me almost as much as what ended up being the monster. He he kind of looks like a like a starburst, like almost how a, a little kid would draw the sun. He's the, the most ominous crack of all because the music changes and then it becomes even louder and more off-key and more unnerving. And he eventually tries to scream and make himself mean and then he he crumbles and then there's just plaster uh, behind him and it says he, he destroyed himself trying to be mean. I guess the message they were trying to get across is don't be mean or your face might crumble. It was terrifying that something that was you know, somebody's wall came to life. And I remember in my own bedroom, I had wallpaper, but some of that wallpaper was a little old and it was coming off in some spots. And I just knew that, you know, one of these these days, something's going to be behind there and it was going to get me. And I, I don't know that that's what they intended to have kids think, but it was enough to stick with me for 30 some years after that. To the point where I didn't even know if it was was a real thing or not. Did did this really happen? Because I would ask people that were right around the same age as I was, and nobody remembered it. I couldn't find anybody that, that could confirm that it wasn't just alive in my brain.
2: Armand is now a voiceover actor in Los Angeles. He spent over 20 years working as a radio host in San Diego, Portland, and Iowa. And during all that time, the cartoon wasn't far from his mind.
3: Well, I had been looking for it probably from the mid to late 80s to the beginning of the internet, right around 2000 or so, when I actually found a couple of people that
2: knew what I was talking about. One of those people was Jennifer Bourne. She remembered seeing the Sesame Street short multiple times and grew up fearing the crack monster.
4: I remember, you know, at night, you know, when you're a kid and you're scared of silly things, you know, I'd be, you know, afraid like he'd show up on the wall. (laughs)
2: Jennifer lives in Los Angeles. She's an illustrator and draws cartoons online. Is it okay if I if I ID you as a cartoonist?
4: I'm fine if for you calling me that, unless you think that's cheating, because I'm not like I'm not like Charles Schultz, you know, like selling calendars and mugs and stuff. You know, I'm very modest. I had a cartoon in Bird Talk once. Huh?
2: That's hey, that's good enough for me. <laughs> okay, like John. Jennifer started poking around the internet for any trace of the cartoon.
4: There was a a thread on the Ruppet-themed bulletin board, you know, about what scared you from Sesame Street. And I think that's where it first popped up. I made a thread about it on Snopes.
2: That's the internet's go-to fact-checking website.
4: And people started trickling in that not only did they remember it, but that it scared them. (laughs) It wasn't just me.
2: And little by little, this odd congregation of people started to form online. It was like a virtual support group of people who were terrorized by the crack monster. And people rode in from California all the way to the United Kingdom. Here are some of Jennifer's favorite posts.
4: I thought I was alone in how this little cartoon freaked me out. I had horrible, reoccurring nightmares based on it the whole time. Seriously, I have been looking for this clip forever because it scared me so much as a kid. I am so relieved to see that it either really existed or that we all had some kind of mass psychosis. If anybody finds it, post, post, post.
2: But was it some kind of mass psychosis? Maybe this was one of those examples of a bunch of people having the same false memory. You know, like how people misremembered the Bernstein Bears as the Bernstein Bears. And by the time 2008 rolled around, several Sesame Street shorts were readily available on YouTube, but the Crack Monster short was nowhere to be found.
3: So I began this search and, and I started going through every possible avenue that I could think of. I, I looked up people that drew and submitted skits. And clips for Sesame Street animators at the time um, during the mid late seventies couldn't find anything there. I eventually got a hold of Children's Television Workshop. At first, they didn't, and, and I'm using I know you can't see it, but I'm using air quotes. They didn't know what I was talking about. They were like, eh, "We don't we don't know anything about it. We didn't keep all of our shows, and you know, we couldn't. Sesame Street had been running for thirty some odd years. There's no way to keep every episode, and we don't know, and blah blah blah." blah. So I had, I had pretty much all but given up. I was working at a radio station at the time, and I got a fax. And the receptionist found me in, in the studio and was like, what in the world is this? It didn't say who it was from. All, the only thing that I had was a number that it came from and a number to fax it back to. But it was basically, they said, we have the copy. They didn't say they have a copy. They said they have the copy, which was a weird way to word it. But they said, you know, we'll allow you to see it, but you need to sign this agreement, which was to never have a public viewing of it, never post it online, never email it to anyone, never send it to anybody. You know, this is just for you. And so I'm, of course, immediately I was like, yes, sign my name. And I faxed it back to this number that I was unable to trace. It was just a fax number. And six months went by and nothing happened. And I thought, well, that I guess that's the end of that. I don't know who sent me this thing. This is where it gets really weird because it was on a Sunday morning. I was living in rural Iowa at the time, right, in the middle of nowhere. And we had one of those mailboxes that sat, like, right on the porch right outside your door. We lived in a neighborhood where the mailman went right up to the porch. And I'd gotten the mail the day before. Well, I went outside, and I noticed that the, there was something in the mailbox because it was right by the door. And it, I went in there, there's, a, like, a manila envelope, like a 6 by 9 little manila envelope. And inside was a disc, a DVD. It was just there with a handwritten note, and on it was written, we trust this completes your search. And what was weird was, not only was it on a Sunday, there was no return address and no postmark and no postage. Could
2: it be? Is it possible that the video somehow resurfaced after 33 years? John went inside and he popped in the DVD. It starts with a two-second snippet of the previous Bert and Ernie segment. And then it faded into the cartoon. We see a young girl lying in bed, looking at a crack on her bedroom wall. The animation is, it's very simple, it's very minimal. And as the narrator explains, partially in song, she imagines the cracks as friendly animals. And we see one of the cracks shapeshift into the form of a camel.
5: While laying in her bed, the cracks overhead, more and more looked like a camel. Today's a rainy day, and I can't go out and play. Would you take me for a ride, camel? Said the camel crack, climb upon my back, and right through the wall they did go.
3: The first time that I watched it, I wanted to just not think. I wanted to just take it in.
2: And then the girl and the camel travel inside the bedroom wall, and they encounter other imaginary crack creatures. There's a monkey, there's a hen, and eventually the crack monster or, as he calls himself, the Crack Master. It's this large, splintery crack that resembles a snarling face.
5: Who are you, they said. The crack just growled instead and made himself look very big and mean. He said, I am Crack Master. But just then the wall plaster began to crumble to the floor, and where the monster stood were only beams of wood. He destroyed himself trying to be mean.
3: When when you're looking for something for that long and you finally get it... You know, the hairs on the back of my neck, my hair on my arms just st- stood straight up for 90 seconds while I watched this thing. And it was it was incredible. And then I watched it again and again. And of course, probably a hundred times over the course of the next week.
5: We'll go and see the cracks again someday.
2: So John was desperate to share that joy, but he didn't know who was behind that cryptic facts and he didn't want to cross them. I, I kind
3: of looked for loopholes um, around what I had signed.
2: On April 2009... John was visiting family in Los Angeles, which also happened to be where cartoonist Jennifer Bourne lived. I I got a hold of her and I was like, look, you know, I'm going to be in town.
3: I can't send you this thing. I can't post this thing, but I can show it to you. Um, And and if I do that, will you kind of let everybody know? Yeah, I really do have it.
4: Of course I did. But I also thought it was kind of weird to think, oh, are you going to go meet some stranger to see a cartoon? You know, what kind of... Weird weird, crazy thing is this?
2: They decided to meet on a Sunday morning.
4: I think it was a coffee bean and tea leaf on, in Los Angeles on Navy and Sepulveda. And um, wondering like, if this guy was really going to show or if he was just going to... There's a lot of strange people in Los Angeles, you know, visiting or otherwise. And so, you know, he could be just some, you know, lunatic that's, you know, trying to sell me doorknobs or something. Then, like, someone showed up, this tall guy with red hair.
3: I had my little DVD player with me and put it in for her. You know, she had the same look on her face when she saw it as I did when I saw it for the first time.
5: While laying in her bed.
4: There it was. the This elusive, you know, formerly scary monster. I was finally face to face with him again. I am crap master. He really yelled, Yeah, that's him. <laughs> like a, you know, seeing Jimmy Hoffa or someone. At least I didn't get thrown out for yelling, but (laughs) I was thinking like, gosh, you know, that really is an ugly, creepy-looking character. I can understand why a high-strung kid might, you know, get a little freaked out by him.
2: So Jennifer wrote a series of blog posts that confirm, yeah, John really did have a copy of Cracks. And of course, he became inundated with all these requests to make it public. And he turned them all down.
3: You know, I I don't know how long the statute of limitations is on that thing I
2: signed, but I don't want to take any chances. One of those requests came all the way from Australia. Daniel Wilson, who's the founder of the Lost Media Wiki, which is a website dedicated to tracking down elusive material. He's been trying to track down a copy for years. And suddenly, on December 2013, he received an anonymous email. No message, just an attachment. It was a copy of Cracks. Here's Wilson talking about it on the YouTube channel Animation Warehouse.
0: And I'm thinking that
6: this is bullshit. Like, before I click it, I'm thinking, no way. There's no way it's this easy.
2: Someone's just going to email it to me.
6: But sure enough, I opened it up and it was the real deal. And I
2: royally lost my shit. (laughs) There was some online speculation about who sent that copy to Wilson.
3: People were like, I think that John Armand, I think he sent him the the thing. I was like, no, it wasn't me. It's a completely different, I mean, it's the same clip, but... His
2: is formatted different than the clip that I have. This new leaked copy included a production title card, which wasn't in John's version. And it's also missing that brief snippet of Burton Ernie. So maybe it came from a different source altogether? I have no idea. I mean, it didn't come from me. Regardless of who sent that second copy, Wilson uploaded it to YouTube.
5: Camel, thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside.
2: And the internet can now finally... Enjoy the cartoon that's haunted so many people for nearly 40 years. Which is great for John and Jennifer, and all the other Gen Xers who were traumatized by the Cracks video. Decades later, they finally get to see that, yes, it was pretty much as strange and out there as they remembered it. But for me, it's just the beginning. I mean, I never saw Cracks as a kid. I wasn't even born when it came out. I can't help but wonder, who produced this? Who leaked it? And why was Children's Television Workshop, which is now called Sesame Workshop, trying to hide it? I knew exactly where to go to find out. I went down to Sesame Street to get some answers.
0: We'll continue with this story in a minute. But I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now back to the podcast. So we're in the what we call the technical operations area.
2: That's Ben Lehman, the executive producer for Sesame Street. He's been at the show for 17 years.
6: You have every style of tape player that you can think of that we've used over the
2: years. Unfortunately, their copy of Cracks isn't in the building. All those old Sesame Street tapes are in Queens.
6: We have an external storage facility that's in Long Island City. It's like one of those giant warehouses, and they physically store tape there.
2: But before they got archived, the tapes were digitized for internal use.
6: So we have a video database that you can pull up films and look at them.
2: So we could we could do that. Of course, I took them up on it. One of the engineers, Al, led us to his computer. Do we know the title is called again? It's called Cracks. The cracks. Let's see if I can actually find it. Oh, I think this is it. Oh, it is. Hello. There it is. While laying
5: in her bed, the cracks overhead.
2: Almost any Sesame Workshop employee could easily access cracks on their computer. So was this where John's copy came from? Or did it come from somebody at that Long Island City warehouse? Or was it leaked by one of the cartoon's original creators, whoever they are?
6: I have no idea how the copy came into this other person's hands.
2: Cracks was before Ben's time, but he did have some ideas as to why the show might have phased it out. It just
6: feels like dated in a way that when it was made that probably wasn't apparent to the filmmakers but then six years later see this cute little vial here
3: it's crack rock cocaine the most addictive form you think it's the glamour drug of the 80s it can kill you
6: and so i I think probably the producers at the time thought it was inappropriate i have one other theory is that it's about a crack in the ceiling, you know? It's the mid-70s. It's a recession in New York. People's houses might not be in the best shape. It just felt, like, somewhat insensitive.
2: Whether or not it was insensitive, I still wanted to find out who was behind the cartoon. After I pestered Sesame Workshop for several days, Ben surprised me with a promising new lead.
6: So one of my producers looked it up, and uh, the film is made by P. Imagination, that's the name of the animation studio. I had never heard of them. I don't know of any of their other films.
2: I wasn't able to find anything under P. Imagination. I googled every iteration of P. Imagination I could think of. Uh, P. Imagination Sesame Street, P. Imagination Animation, P. Imagination Sesame Street Animation, and didn't find anything worthwhile. There was a studio called Imagination, Inc. It was all the way in San Francisco. It was run by Jeff Hale, who did make several Sesame Street shorts.
3: Uh Uh-oh,
0: here comes a big black bird. Shoo, away, take a bus to
2: Birdville. But was this the right studio? I didn't have much luck finding out who the animators are from Imagination, Inc., aside from Jeff Hale. And I don't think cracks is his work. Hale has this distinct design style, and it just didn't look like a match. Then again, it could have been made by some other mysterious employee at Imagination. Sadly, there isn't anyone I could ask. The studio shuttered its doors in 1979, and Hale died in 2015. Uh, I don't have a lot of information on it.
6: Sorry we can't elucidate more.
4: (laughs) But That's the strange thing, is nobody seems to have come forward and explained who made it.
3: You know, because there had to be at least... You know, half a dozen people involved. You've got the animator, you've got the the voice artist who was uh, the woman. Uh, you've got whoever scored. There was a lot of music in there. Whoever scored the 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 clip. I mean, there's a lot of people involved. And so far, none of them in in seeing all the stuff we were putting online. Nobody came forward and said, "Oh yeah, that you know that part was me." No one has
2: claimed this clip at all. Even if it was tricky to nail down the production studio, I did get another lead after some digging. Joe Hennis at the Sesame Workshop found the people credited with the music for cracks. There was saxophonist Mel Martin, radio producer Peter Scott, and someone named Dorothy Moskowitz. I found her on Facebook. After a few messages, she agreed to talk on the phone. Hi there. That's Dorothy.
1: Let me lower the volume now. Hold on a second.
2: But some people on the internet might know her by another name.
1: While laying in her bed, the cracks overhead look more and more like a camel.
2: The crack master. <laughs> I wish
1: I could do it over.
2: <laughs> and it turns out that Dorothy had absolutely no idea that people on the internet have been looking for her for the past four decades.
1: I just found out about it yesterday, so it, it hasn't settled quite, but I was amazed that there is this underground upset. A lot of... What can I call her the cult, you
2: know? And Dorothy wasn't just the voice of some obscure Sesame Street cartoon. She was also the lead singer for the band The United States of America, which was one of the most influential groups of the 1960s. They were early pioneers of electronic music. They used synthesizers and oscillators to create avant-garde psychedelic rock. The band broke up after making their eponymous debut album in 1968, but their legacy casts a long shadow. You can hear their influence in bands like Stereolab, Animal Collective, and Portishead, who thank the United States of America in their liner notes. After the disillusion of the band, Dorothy joined the group Country Joe and the Fish. This is her singing with Country
4: Joe.
1: I came back off the road from Country Joe, and it was, I guess, a golden era of studio work here in town. And I could be in a band. I had corporate work. I played parties. I did uh, every holiday season. I had Christmas gig, New Year's gig, And I also didn't have to have a day job. And there were many people like me. We could make a living as a musician in this town in the mid-'70s. It was fabulous.
2: And one of those studio gigs was narrating this animated short called Cracks.
1: It was probably the most goddamn strange recording session I'd ever attended.
2: Dorothy remembered it being in a studio in the Mission District of San Francisco. Radio producer Peter Scott directed the session.
1: We were in one of the small studios. So there was basically Pete and Mel Martin and myself. So Peter had me lay down the vocals. There was no melody written down there for me. There were no chords written down for Mel Martin. And, you know, sing where you want to sing. Well, what should I sing? And at first I was bewildered, and then I realized that's the way it would work well. There were places where it just fell into melody and places where it didn't.
5: But perhaps not so, said Monkey Crack. At night behind the door, I think I've heard one more.
1: And then Mel Martin, he just insinuated this wonderful line over and above and around my narration. And it matched perfectly.
5: Good day, good day, good day. I'm glad you came my way. And how has everybody been?
1: And then Pete said, well, for the Crackmaster, we need a little more something. And, you know, any actor loves pulling out the stops. It's called eating the furniture. <laughs> Sorry. And so here we have the best visual in the, the animation. And Mel just... Preaching. I think it's on two instruments, and I'm shamelessly plowing into it with a lot of theater.
5: I am crap master. But
1: just no wonder kids were scared. I scared myself.
2: Oh, my God, that's the lady. After I found Dorothy, I had to share some of the interview with John Armand. So I surprised him with an excerpt.
1: Thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside.
3: <laughs> that's the lady from... I, I recognized it immediately.
2: That was crazy. Peter Scott died in 2008, and Mel Martin died in 2017. Dorothy still has no idea who wrote or animated the cartoon. But there was one person Dorothy remembers being in the session, a mysterious woman in white.
1: She came in quite late. She was covered from head to toe in sheer linens, like a linen blouse and linen pantaloons and a linen skirt, and pants went down to the floor And now thinking back 40 years later, it may have been that she was a graphic artist and artists dressed that way.
2: Dorothy doesn't remember her name, aside from it being vaguely hippie-ish.
1: Sky or Earth or Fern or whatever her name was.
2: Again, this was San Francisco in the 70s, so that doesn't exactly narrow it down.
1: I recall her talking about they're having some challenges putting the animation together. So now I'm really wondering whether maybe, maybe Pete, got an overall outline from her and then he wrote the words or... We'll never know now,
2: will we? Probably not. This was a video that haunted kids and now it's a mystery that kind of haunts me as an adult. I mean, who created this cartoon? Who sent it to John? Who sent it to Daniel Wilson? And who was this woman in white? Like the cracks in the cartoon, the story just keeps morphing and taking... Stranger New Forms.
1: I think I'm going to join some of these chat groups and try and figure out what's what, because I was as close to it as you could possibly be, and I'm still mystified.
5: Camel, thank you for the ride. The rain has stopped outside. We'll go and see the cracks again someday.
0: You can watch the Cracks cartoon on our site, studio360.org. Special thanks to Joe Hennis, Beatrice Chow, and Ken Scarborough at Sesame Workshop. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.